This is episode 39 of the Just Get Started podcast, and my guest today is the founder of RepView, Ryan Walsh. Let's get it started. Hey gang, and welcome to another episode of the Just Get Started podcast. I'm your host, Brian Andreco. Thanks again for being a part of this journey. Excited to have you here for another episode. And this is a really cool one because, you know, over the last few episodes, I've talked with a lot of younger entrepreneurs, uh, folks that in their late teens, early 20s, you know, started businesses, did speaking engagements, wrote books. And it's really nice to have someone on the other side of the coin, if you will, um, that went the more traditional path and now later in life decided, hey, you know what? I'm going to scratch my own itch. They're kind of a, a challenge I see out there in the marketplace, and I'm going to go try to solve that. So that's what we have with my guest today, Ryan Walsh. Um, you can find him online. LinkedIn's probably best. Uh, just Ryan Walsh. Type in R-Y-A-N-W-A-L-S-H. Um, he is the founder of RepView. Uh, they're spelled R-E-P-V-U-E. And just go to RepView.com to check them out. But... You know, for someone that kind of was carrying his own bag as a, a sales professional and had to work his way up the ranks and then had this kind of shift in gears later in life, um, it's really cool to talk through some of his stories of sales, you know, scaling a business, um, taking that leap of faith. So we get into some really good discussions um, in this interview. So without further ado, let's jump into my chat today with Ryan Walsh. Let's get it started. Hey, Ryan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining today. Hey, thanks. Glad to be here. Excited to chat with you a little about the, especially from a sales realm. I want to get really some some good depth into that, help some folks out there um, mm-hmm. with your experience and background. I wanted to start though, as I always like to do, because I'm always curious. Um, one, where did I, I know you live in Chapel Hill right now? Where did did you grow up in the area, of North Carolina? Or what, tell me, tell me a little about your upbringing, where you grew up, and and we'll start there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I love Chapel Hill. Um, been in Chapel Hill since 1995, actually. So been in Chapel Hill quite a while. I, I grew up in Charlotte, so originally from Charlotte, and then I came up to Chapel Hill for school at UNC, did undergrad at UNC in 95, and um, uh, have, have really stayed in the area. I had a brief stint living in Durham for a few years after school, uh, but really right across the border from Durham, uh, from Chapel Hill in Durham, um, and, and have really made some roots in, in Chapel Hill. Love Charlotte, um, and it's, still have family down there. And, and, uh, but my wife is from Durham as well. So we're, we're kind of all implanted here locally. Um, and so just after school, never really, uh, never really, um, had a reason to leave and, you know, happy to talk about, you know, the, the, the transition out of school. A lot of people, a lot of people leave the area and whatnot, but I, I stuck around as well. So, um, you know, happy to talk through that. I think it's, it's, it has shaped a lot of kind of who I am today and, and, and how I got to where I am today as well, which is the very, very early stuff right after school. And, and I mentioned 99 as the, the time frame when I got out of school. And so the internet boom for, for those listeners who are, who are, you know, who are in the workforce at that time, it was just a lot of, a lot of crazy stories and crazy valuations and people talk now about, uh, crazy valuations with all the venture capital and the huge funding rounds, but it was nothing like it was back then. And uh, so after I got out of school, I wanted to join a startup. You know, I was I was excited to do that. And um, 
uh, I got hooked up luckily with a local entrepreneur local to the Raleigh-Durham area uh, named Scott Wingo, who had founded several companies and his partner, Aris, had founded several companies and they were six or seven months earlier had founded a company called auctionrover.com. And so, uh, so auctionrover.com had two products, one of which was an, a search engine aggregator for auction websites. Uh, put in simple terms, you go to their site, you type in a product and it gives you results from all the different auction websites on the internet. And saying that now you think, well, there's eBay and, and then there's eBay and what, you know, what, what else am I getting? But, but remember before the internet boom fizzled out or busted, uh, there were hundreds of auction websites. And so, so the, the business scraped all these websites, put them all in a single search result and, and presented them to the, to the consumer, the user. And the other, the other offering that the business had was a, uh, a small kind of web-based app to help hobbyists sell on auction sites so those two products and so this is great and uh early 2000 just before the bubble burst they sold that business to a much larger company the leader in search you know online search at the time bigger than google was goto.com bought that company uh and a few months later the internet boom had had crashed and burned and if if that company scott and rs's company had not been acquired uh, for a huge sum of money with very little revenue which was which was common at the time um, my journey, you know, as you mentioned earlier, my journey would be very, very different. But, um, you know, I was less than a year out of school. I thought this is great. This is going to happen every year. Everybody's going to be happy and excited and we'll have cake and all that other stuff. But, uh, you know, a few months later, we realized this is not the norm and, and things are going to be quite a bit different for the next couple of years. Um, and so we kind of grinded away. Luckily, like I said, we were we were part of this much larger company. Um, and so we had our bills paid for us. So if we didn't, we, the, the company would, would absolutely not be around. And, um, the auction search engine piece went away. I mean, all those auction sites that we were scraping other than eBay, they all went out of business and, and Scott and ours and the rest of the team, uh, you know, we, we started to put more and more focus on that other platform that, um, uh, you know, that small web-based app to help sellers sell on eBay and, and other auction sites. And about a year later, summer of 2001, they, they went to the big company and said, hey, we'd like to spin this out. We'd like to buy this back and, and just take this little thing here that you guys don't care about and, and start our own little company here in North Carolina. And you guys can go back to worrying about all the, all the other things you have to worry about. And, and the company, you know, I'm, I'm greatly simplifying a complex process, but they said, sure. And that was summer of 2001. And that was, that was the birth of Channel Advisor, which if you're local to the Raleigh-Durham area, is so now a... a public software company employing about eight, 900 people, um, helping businesses sell on eBay and Amazon, you know, fast forwarding 17 years. Uh, but, but that was how Channelvisor was, was born. And, and Scott and his partner, Aris took about 20 or 25 of us employees and, and started the business. And so I was there on day one. Um, so, so, and, and obviously you're happy to talk through that, that kind of sales trajectory that I took at Channelvisor, but, but I think that the background there, um, you know, it was really, we got to see some, some incredible highs and then some, some really challenging times. And, and it kind of, it, you know, kind of shows you what startup life is like, um, you know, prior to spinning back out with channel visor, had to, had to lay off a number of staff. And, um, and this is all in really a 16 to 20 month period where, where all of this went down, um, from me starting to getting acquired to then the internet boom to, uh, to then kind of, you know, really scraping together this new business model and then spinning it back out, um, you know, all within, you know, less than two years out of, out of undergrad, which was, 
which was a really, really incredible journey and, and, and learned a ton from that. Yeah. Um, what did you, um, is there anything, I mean, I wanted to underscore something you said a, a little bit ago about, you know, you wanted to get to a startup. It, yeah. Why, why that? Like, why did you come out of, you know, UNC and say, Hey, I'm going to get into a startup and not go somewhere else. What, what would, is that something where you've always had that kind of want, you know, I want to do this from an earlier age, or is that something you picked up in college or? Yeah, you know that's a great question, and I don't I don't think it was something that I that had been ingrained in me at a very early age, and um, and I think it was really a matter of timing, okay, and and you know I studied economics at at UNC, and they, you know there there are good programs now for entrepreneurship, and it's it's really touted, and a lot of that is because of the press that entrepreneurs get, and they get put up on a pedestal for for building these great companies, and in some cases they should, maybe in some cases they shouldn't, but. Um, for better or for worse, I think it was timing, and and it was just you know at that time it was what a lot of people were talking about, and it was a lot of the news from a business standpoint, and you know you you think that especially being young and naive that maybe this thing is going to continue this this kind of internet boom is going to continue, and obviously the internet plays a pivotal role in all of our lives today and and has been for some time, um, but but it took a really big hit you know seventeen eighteen nineteen years ago. Um, you know, after the the bubble burst, and so I, th I think it was really a matter of timing. I came out of school right at that perfect time when it was all in the news, and I thought, well, this seems like an interesting opportunity rather than take maybe a more traditional route and go work for, you know, you know Anderson Consulting or you know what, you know, try to get into banking things like that that a lot of a lot of folks would would do. Go, tell me about kind of going to a because uh, I have some similar experience with going to a company. I was employee twenty four, so you were in the top twenty five, right? You said when they when they started out Channel Advisor. Can you talk about the the maybe the early first year or two, especially being on the floor from a sales standpoint, and kind of some of the things you had to go through or kind of learn along the way? Yeah, that you know the first I'll I'll I'll, I'll probably categorize that honestly as not even the first year or two. It's really the first five years. Um, I had, you know, it was day one at Channel Visor, but I had worked with these couple dozen folks for a year and a half or more. And, and so we kind of knew what everybody's skills were and what everybody's good at. And, and I was offered the opportunity to, to, to take a couple different paths. And one of them was, hey, why don't you try and, you know, we're so new to this. We have a couple big customers that have happened across our platform really by happenstance. And, but let's put some sales effort behind it. And I took that opportunity. I said, you know, I, I feel like I'm good at sales. I've done a little bit here in in kind of a side kind of a side hustle within the business. And so let me do this. And 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 what I did was I I took the the western half of the United States, and I was the sales guy. I went to try and close large companies to sell products on. At the time, the primary service was primary solution and, and platform was helping them sell excess inventory on eBay, large companies like IBM, Sun Microsystems were clients. And uh, there was no support. There was minimal leadership. There was no sales engineering. There was no SDRs. We weren't really doing um, kind of field marketing or B2B marketing at the time. And it was just go out there and, uh, you know, eat what you kill. And, and I, I'd say those first few years, uh, I really was able to, and this, this has really shaped my experience my entire career was the first five years allowing me to develop my skills in kind of the art side of selling, which is reading people, which is, you know, listening, uh, understanding the customer, trying to understand pain points, trying to understand problems and just solving problems and, and, and just helping solve problems. 
And um, I think there, you know, to some degree, I, I was good at that. Uh, I enjoyed doing it. I was just a couple years out of school, so pretty young. Um, you know, at the time I wasn't married, I didn't have kids. So traveling was not a problem. I spent about one week a month on the West Coast. And it, it allowed me to hone my, the, the art side of the, the sales uh, formula. Um, and, and the other thing that, that I look back at now, I didn't think about this at the time, I look back at now and I had the same job for five years, really close to five years, same job title, uh, same territory, uh, same, same mission, same goals. Maybe leadership might've swapped out a couple times and still didn't have a lot of support from sales engineering, which there was none that entire tenure. Um, but, but being patient. And, and that's one of the things we see a lot today is a lot of job hopping and a lot of, you know, Hey, I'm, I'm going to get this SDR job in eight months. I'm going to be a sales exec. And then in eight months, I'm going to be a, another eight months. I'm going to be a senior. And then another eight months after that, I'm going to be a manager. Um, it's great to have those ambitions for sure. Uh, but you're not getting enough repetitions in, in tenure. And I think that just was immensely beneficial for me to have that tenure of five years or more than five years in the same role, doing the same thing, learning, listening, getting repetitions, getting at bats, as we like to say. And, and so the first half of the last decade, I was, I was a sales guy. And yeah, I was an early employee. And so selling at a, at a very early stage startup, you have to hustle and you have to herd cats and you have to, you know, you know, you have to make more friends internally than, you know, every, you know, you're going to need a lot of different people internally. So there's all that that goes with selling at a startup. But, but the most impactful part for me was just getting that tenure and that time and honing my personal craft, which I would then impart years later on the, the larger and larger teams that I would run. Yeah, and that's actually a good segue because I was curious, and I'm glad you said that because I was I was going to probably say the same thing. Our minds are working together around just I think I think people jump too quick. Um, yeah. They don't give the opportunity to kind of grow, especially you know what opportunities could be at that particular company they're at, um, and ultimately they maybe chase a dollar and, and they may not end up being happy um, going to that new job just because it's a few extra dollars. So, can you talk a little about kind of working your way up that you know quote unquote corporate ladder? Maybe yeah. it's advice to share to people like. I don't know, I encourage them to, to kind of look at things a little bit differently to, to help them out in their career. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, the, I get asked that question a lot, right? And, and one of the first thing I say, one of the first things I say is be patient, right? Put your time in, um, accomplish something, right? You know, and people, it's true, you can get a raise by jump by switching companies and, and, and that sort of thing. But when I look at resumes, I, I try and identify what have you really accomplished during the tenure at the stay of the companies where you were? And, you know, I kind of put in there, if, if you haven't really been there two years, you're still figuring things out. If you haven't been in that role two years, you're still figuring it out, especially in a, in a complex sales role. So, so patience is really, really critical. And, you know, and I was patient and I didn't, I didn't, you know, even necessarily ask for some of the opportunities that I was given. It was, it was one of those things where, I worked really, really hard, and I, I was, I was very, you know, cognizant of the performance that I put in, and, and you know, very committed to not just my performance but the company's performance. And I think that was recognized. And I, you know, I do owe a lot to leadership, particularly Scott Wingo um, at Channelvisor for for identifying that and putting me in a position. And and the first big transition for me was was running a team, running 
and we did a big reorg and kind of, uh, I, I got into a sales director role kind of the second half of last decade. And we did a reorg and we needed somebody to run the Eastern half of the United States. Uh, and, and there was a West region and the East region and the Europe region at, at channel visor at the time. And, and it was, it was not a huge team, but it was maybe 25 people and maybe 30 people, something like that. And it had salespeople, it had SDRs, it had, um, you know, we put SDRs in there, sales engineer, account managers to manage the existing relationships. And I didn't have a lot of experience managing people, but I, but I knew what we needed to accomplish. I had a mission and I, I put together a plan that I thought would succeed. And, um, and the team wasn't big and, and I had the opportunity to hire a lot of those people as well. And so, so I was able to put people in place that I trusted. And so to, to answer your original question, I think that the biggest thing for me that allowed me to advance in my career was honing a craft and getting really, really good at something and, and performing in that role, regardless of what that role is. If you're ultimately very successful, um, people and leadership have belief that you can accomplish other things. And if given more opportunity, you can, because of the work ethic and the commitment that you've shown in role A, uh, you're going to be afforded opportunities to excel in role B. And it was a philosophy that I put in place too, that, hey, look, you you might not have experience doing X, right? But I've seen you, you know, I've seen you, you know, perform doing something else. And I know you're committed and I want to give you this opportunity. And I know that you're committed. And so I'm going to give you this opportunity rather than try and find somebody off the street, um, you know, because I'm going to work with you. And I, I believe that you're committed to success. So, so really, you know, a lot of it is just how, you know, how, how successful can you be and can you accomplish something in a current role? And so, you know, I, I jokingly refer to resumes as the Forrest Gump resume, um, where, you know, you were the shrimp boat captain, you ran across America, you, you know, kick field goal somewhere, uh, you know, <laughs> you just, just jump and jump and jump around and, um, you know, but you didn't have that, that strong tenure in a certain place. And so, you know, my tenure was 17 years total at Channel Visor, and I'm not saying that you know everybody has to be someplace 17 years because I think that's unusual. Uh, but just be somewhere where you can accomplish something and point to something, if that makes sense. Yeah, and were there any things? Obviously, you know, there were other uh, sales professionals there with you that potentially didn't get promoted, and obviously didn't become the you know the the chief revenue officer at some point. Yeah. What uh, were there any you know things that you did on a consistent basis you know daily habits or maybe routines maybe there's some stuff you still do now or you do some different stuff but curious back then if there's anything that kind of kept you um, kind of above you know every not above maybe a different term but you know like we're kind of setting yourself apart from the other individuals there any things that you kind of focused on yeah yeah absolutely there were there were a couple areas and I think the the most important one that that I used to think about a lot was. Um, we, you know, given that we were a startup and there weren't a ton of other resources, how can I put myself in a position where uh, I can excel while needing as little outside intervention as possible? So if I have to go to a tech person to handle a certain call, then I'm putting the future of this deal potentially or partially in the hands of someone else. If I have to go to a product person to explain some feature or function, functionality to a prospect, I'm now putting the potential of this deal at risk because it could be delayed, that person may not be available. 
and they may just not be able to to explain it in a way that the customer understands as well as I can because they're not a salesperson. And so I continually and consistently work to educate myself in as many areas as possible around the company, the product, the value proposition, our customers, the sales process. And I knew the product inside and out. Um, and so for me, and I encourage today, I, I encourage salespeople uh, that are in a B2B sales, particularly a technical sale, you know, learn as much about the product as possible. Try and be in a position where you can do your own demos, even if you're offered a, a resource who can help you with those demos um, and, and put yourself in that position. And again, this is, this is years ago, so times were a little different then, but I would consistently try and put as much of the onus on the success on my own shoulders as possible, um, whereby I didn't have to rely on, on outside help. And I think that now there's so many resources and I think it's great to have a sales engineer and I think it's great to have SDRs, um, which are helping. But I think if you get too far away from the, the, the deal, you put, you kind of, you're, you're labeled as kind of that, uh, you know, traffic cop sales process where you're just there to open up the meeting, uh, let everybody else do all the talking, close up the meeting and send the follow-up. Um, you know, I want to be the one doing the selling, even if it's a technical sale. You know, because I, you know, because I feel like I, I know the customer best uh, and I know the discovery best that I did. So, I mean, just just the constant, consistent education on the business and the product was, was a key in the early 2000s for my success in that individual contributor role. Yeah, that's that's great advice there to uh, to share. Um, I, I wanted to. So. If if you want to talk a little about kind of, you know, I, I would just kind of curious, you're here, you, you went up through the ladder, right, in terms right. of leadership, then you became the chief revenue officer. Tell me what that was about. I mean, I, I guess partially was it the reflection of looking back and saying, wow, look where I kind of come after all right. these years. I'm just kind of curious your perspective on there as you got to that point And what were some of the things that, you know, were important to you to kind of grow the company and continue to grow the sales, excuse me, the sales side of the house? Sure. Yeah. I mean, it was, and again, I, I owe a lot to our founder, Scott Wingo and, and current CEO, David Spitz, who came on a few years later. But, um, you know, the, the, I talked a little bit about the art of selling that I honed my craft earlier in my career. Later, it was more about the science of selling. When I built that team, and it wasn't a big team, but we grew and, and it worked well. Whatever I did worked, you know, whatever I was doing at the time seemed to be working. And I was afforded more opportunities. Hey, why don't you take over all of US? Hey, why don't you take over the Europe team too? And and it was it was the, the science part of selling. And and you've heard this, I'm sure everybody's heard this before. The best salespeople don't always make the best managers. And there's many reasons for that. Number one, maybe they just don't like managing people, which I, you know, managing people is difficult. Um or, you know, I'm good at selling, but I don't like to adhere to a process. But I enjoyed, I was an economics major, always good at math. I like math. I like, you know, analytics. I, when I took on that leadership role, really, really committed myself to the science of selling, building a Henry Fordyce system uh, to manage and optimize the funnel that was my team. How many leads are coming in? Where are they coming from? What are we doing with those leads? How are they converting? Who are they converting to? What are those people doing with those leads? How many calls were they making? How are we tracking all this? How are we reporting on all this? And identifying every point of fit when they become customers, are we touching them enough to, to ensure that our churn is, is appropriate? 
and so I, I kind of built this this points of failure system where I would look at all right what what's every touch point in this process are we have we identified those touch points and then have we measured those touch points so we can track them and then are we acting on the touch points you know there's say there's 25 touch points or 25 data points what are the worst five or we're performing the, the, the worst and can we can we take those from a two on a scale of one to ten to a four on a scale of one to ten this quarter and, and just constantly optimizing those and so so that was the you know that was kind of the science part of selling and i loved it i loved doing that i loved looking at the data and the reports as much as i loved being in front of customers and, and winning in that pitch and so when you combine that with you know dedicating yourself to hiring and maintaining and retaining the best team possible um, you've got a formula for success, um, assuming you have product market fit, which we did. Um, you've got a formula for success. And I just committed myself to, to taking that formula, continually optimizing it and, and believing in the system that we had, which was which was which was working and leadership believed in me. And we saw the results that spoke for themselves. And so really, I went from the 25 person team and then, hey, why don't you take over all of US? And a few years later, we were growing to you know, 80, 100 people. And then, you know, a few years later, you know, kind of went through an IPO and we were 240 people. Um, but it was the same basic philosophy. I, you know, I had a philosophical approach to teams. Uh, and then I also had a one level below that more granular, a philosophical approach to building and scaling a sales organization, more of a, more of a kind of my pillars of that. So, a kind of a, a values-based philosophy for my team. And then a, a pillars-based philosophy to, I'm sorry, value-based philosophy to my approach to, to business, which I applied and then a kind of a pillars-based approach to my org, um, you know, and, and so it was, it was people, um, you know, and it, and it was the process that we, that we really focused on. And, you know, like I said, you, you have to also any, any business now, I mean, you know, a, a, a great, uh, you know, a, a poor business, will win over a, a great team every day. So, so, you know, you have to also look at the fact that Channelizer had some really good product market fit for us, a good segment of customers that were selling on, on Amazon and eBay. And we really helped them. We, we really solved problems for our customers as well, which made my job easier. And so talk a little bit about the transition then. So obviously, so you started a uh, growth line consulting. Yep. Um, and obviously, you know, re earlier, well, I guess we're in 2019. So last year, you started uh, RepView. Can you talk about that transition going from, hey, you're in a big organization, you know, the, the CRO, and then starting your own thing? How, how, would, how was that transition? What was the self-talk maybe? How long did it take for you to actually take the leap? I'm just kind of yep. curious what you went through during that period of time. Yeah, I mean, it took a while to make that to make that leap. I'll, I'll say this. I mean, yeah, it, it, it is a big transition, but I think me personally, I'm more of a builder and grower than a facilitator. And when, when you're a CRO or any really executive leadership position of, you know, at the time a public company, we'd been public for almost four years. Um, the team was maybe 240-ish people. Um, you know, it's a totally different job than growing a small sales organization or building something new. And I think that First of all, I just enjoy that challenge a bit more, right? And, and we'd had some success in the past, and I think it was time for me to move on to to some new challenges. And you know, the other thing, I was probably the one of the last, if not the last, of kind of the executive leadership team. 
you know, that was still with the business and prime, the primary factor there being Scott, who, who stepped down as CEO a couple of years before that as well. And it just became a whole different, uh, it just became a whole different type of animal and different challenge. And it was, it was great. Um, but it was, it wasn't necessarily what I wanted to do at the time. And, and there were a couple of the growth, the growth line consulting business really came about by accident. Uh, you know, it was going to take a couple months off and a couple things fell in my lap. And then all of a sudden I was really, really busy. Um, and, uh, and so growth line consulting was, is really helping, uh, helping early stage tech companies that are, that are gaining traction and trying to gain traction with the art side and the science side. In some cases it's developed the value proposition. So the most common thing I heard was, Hey, I, you know, I've got this problem and we solved it with this platform, which I say, great and great. And they say, and I just have to demo it to people and the fish are going to jump in the boat. And, you know, so that as a sales, you know, leader and longtime person in that field, I know, you know, that's actually, you know, you've got to build a value proposition. You have to make them understand, uh, you know, what is the challenge that you're trying to solve with your solution and all that. So helping that and then operationalizing their sales, like I did in kind of the science side and, um, and, and that, you know, I, I don't necessarily consider that my, an entrepreneurial journey necessarily. It was just a consulting business. It was just me. I'm not super scalable. I don't think I would probably do that forever. Uh, but it was, it was good transition for a while. Um, as I thought about some of the next things that I wanted to do and, um, you know, earlier this year, or I guess now last year, early last year, I was kind of at a transition point. I could continue to do some consulting. I had several offers to go run some sales organizations, none of which really felt right uh, to me. Um, and, and, and I think I'll say this about people and the, the kind of entrepreneurial journey is that I never considered myself an entrepreneur and I, I really never thought I would be. Um, and it wasn't because I didn't think I could execute on a strategy or build a company logistically and, you know, operationally. It was more like I didn't feel like I have that idea that was worth putting my time and effort into it from a startup perspective, because it's a lot of work and it's, it's a lot of risk. And, and that all changed after I left kind of the quote unquote corporate world. And within several months, I started to have a number of different ideas. I thought, well, maybe these are actually worth pursuing. And I think what a lot of people don't realize is that there's a lot of potential entrepreneurial ideas out there and they're, they're locked in because you're in such a grind in the day to day. And for me, it was, you know, traveling and traveling internationally every month and, and, you know, people issues every, every day and, and public company quarterly numbers to hit and, and you're just get into this grind. And when you, when you kind of unlock that, and you open yourself up, you start seeing problems in new ways and challenges in new ways and, and, and start thinking about ways to solve those problems. And, and that's what led me to the path of, of RepView, which, which I thought and felt and believe um, in a big way that it's a problem that's worth solving. We, we've got a problem that's worth solving and it's a, a solution, excuse me, that's unique to the market um, out there. And, um, and so that's how, you know, and obviously happy to talk about RepView and what we're building, but that's kind of how that, that kind of year, year and a half um, kind of transpired. And it was a really unique time as I thought about leaving a larger corporate structure and having a little bit more brain and mind bandwidth to consider what problems I could solve and weigh those against so I could try and solve these or I could go back and 
you know, kind of run a sales organization. So, so that was kind of the, the transitional point that I was at at the time. And let, let everyone know a little bit about, before we jump into a little bit about RepView, kind of the background yep. of that. Yeah. So, so during that time of consulting, there were several things that I saw over and over again. Okay. And, and number one is I got a lot of calls from people who said, Hey, this salesperson, maybe they worked in your organization for a period of time and how do they do? And, and, you know, we're considering hiring them, whatnot. And I still get a lot of calls, those types of calls. And I would, I would, you know, thinking about it now, you know, it's usually three buckets of responses. Number one, the bucket is, Hey, hire this person, pay them, whatever, whatever they ask and get them on board as soon as possible. Cause they're going to crush it for you. Right. You know, we, we all want those people on the team. There's, there's definitely a few of those out there. If you're listening, you know who you are. Uh, and then there's nope, uh, you know, run away for various reasons and do not hire them. But there's a very large bucket in the middle where I would probably look at it and I would say, look, we hired this person for a certain reason and we thought they would do well and these were their credentials and they look good and they interviewed well. And I still truly believe they can succeed. They didn't necessarily blow it out of the park for us, knock it out of the park for us. But maybe that's not there. Maybe that was on us. Maybe our training wasn't what they needed. Maybe our product was too technical. You know, maybe we were too much of a startup or too much of a big company for them because certain people fit better in different environments. So that the whole concept of are we putting salespeople in a position to succeed? Are we doing our part? And some of that is some of that is, you know, not uncovering this information in the interview. Some of that is not running the appropriate type of organization for the skill set that we have. Um, so, so that big bucket, and I would tell people you should interview them because of the skills that they have and, and they might do really well at your organization. They didn't do well at ours, but I don't necessarily put that all on them. And so when I combine that with the fact that I saw, I saw, and I still see so many sales organizations that are poorly run with inadequate leadership and inadequate process and inadequate, um, you know, approaches to methodologies and, and just process, you know, just everything. It, it really got me thinking, you know, how can we how can we drive visibility in the process that is sales executives evaluating their opportunities and then how can we hold sales organizations accountable to the environments that they're that they're selling into and so i think about that well how do how do organizations get hold, held accountable and there's obviously there's things like glassdoor um you know and, and review platforms out there but but i wanted a, i wanted a different way and a better way and and really what our mission is at repview is um, to empower sales professionals, right? We want to empower sales professionals and improve life for sales professionals by delivering transparency in sales organizations and delivering insights to sales professionals so that when they're considering their next role, um, you know, they have as much insight into the company as the company may have into them. And what I mean by that is if you see technologies that are, we'll call them talent acquisition technologies, <clears throat> almost all of those talent acquisition technologies are geared at helping the company determine if the sales professional is the right fit. There's no technologies that are helping the sales professional determine if that company is the right fit. So for example, hey, sales or candidate, it doesn't even have to be a sales candidate, but candidate, take this personality test or take this quiz or we're going to run you through X, Y, and Z process or, hey, here's a better way to interview or here's a better you know, technology for candidate applicant tracking system. But what about the sales professional when they're navigating their decision? What, what information do they have about that company other than they happen to have a friend that works there or I read a couple of reviews on Glassdoor. And so, so RepView is a, is a platform 
that uh, that crowdsources sales professional ratings of sales organizations, highly objective, completely anonymous. And we're taking that data and we're building a structured database of companies uh, that are going to be ranked and stacked against each other uh, based on factors that sales professionals care about. And we'll drive and deliver visibility to sales professionals to say, hey, based on your profile and, and the information that you entered, simply by rating a company, we know what you care about, and we're going to match you to companies who are good at things that you care about. Um, and we've just launched a platform, and we're just starting to collect data, and it's already you know, pretty interesting data in terms of what do salespeople care about and what do companies do well. And um, you know, over the next year or so, we're really highly focused on just the data acquisition efforts, collecting ratings, getting as many ratings as possible from sales professionals. Um, but that's, that's the, the high level of RepView, what our mission is. And, and, and it's, you know, it's, it's a mission that's, that's also tied to the fact that sales attrition is twice non-sales attrition. It's two times, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a problem. Sales attrition is a problem. Sales, sales, um, you know, Hiring, sales retention of sales employees is is fundamentally broken. Um, less than half the salespeople are hitting quota uh, right now. Uh, it's, it's onboarding times are going up significantly, uh, and um, it's it's a problem. And sales attrition in the U.S. costs the economy six hundred billion dollars every year. And so I think those those problems are worth solving, and they're worth solving in parallel with enabling sales professionals to have more transparency in organizations. So that's a lot there, you know, about our, our mission. <laughs> oh, that's good. Very no, I, about it. no, it's good to, to I mean, it's actually refreshing because I mean, you and I could probably do a whole podcast just on the recruiting process and sales because I have a lot of opinions on it as yeah, well. So we should. It, yeah. It's, yeah, it's, I mean, it, there's, there's a lot of things out there. So it's actually refreshing to see you do that and um, kind of get in the mix. Well, I, I'm just curious because, you know, we always want to learn from the past and, and yeah. things we went through. What, what's been the first year? Like what were, what have been the biggest challenges you've went through in this first year kind of getting review up and running? Yeah. So first of all, I, I'm not a, I'm not a developer, right? I am not a technologist. I've worked in software my entire career, right? But I've never, I've never written a single line of code. I've never in my professional capacity uh, delivered product specifications to a development team, right? Now, obviously, I've provided feedback on product to, to product managers and sat in on hundreds of meetings related to product and development and things like that. And, um, but, but so as a, as a founder, and, and you know what? One of the reasons why nobody is attacking this sales problem, I can assure you, and I've seen tons of companies that are attacking this development problem of hiring and retaining good software developers is because most of the founders are technologists. And so, so for me, a personal challenge that, well, you know, aside of like just taking the leap, like the, you know, taking the first step is just taking a step is the hardest step, but uh, not being a technologist, um, you know, how, where do I even get started? Right. What, you know, how do, how do I figure that out? Do I, do I need to hire somebody? And so, I attack that problem a couple different ways. I do have a CTO. He's not he's not full time, and he doesn't actually write code. But he's the the original founder of Auction Rover and the original founder of of Channel Advisor, Aris Bonavichis, locally here to Chapel Hill. Scott Wingo is, is very well known in the area, but he has a he has a partner in all of his businesses except for his most recent one, Spiffy. 
uh, and Aris is my CTO. And so he's, he's given me a ton of insight in, into a lot of those challenges. And I ended up outsourcing development and, um, and I, but I'm the one that has to write all the product specs. I have to translate my vision into paper. And frankly, I was not very good at it at first. I, you know, I think we probably wasted a number of cycles in the first couple months because I was writing bad specs, you know, delivering them to an outsourced team where they speak English, all of them, developers, product, project managers, but it's not their first language. And you literally have to spell out everything for them since it's an outsourced team versus somebody sitting beside me. And I just wasn't very good at it. And I think now I'm a lot better at it. I'd say I'm still not nearly as good at it as somebody who's done it for years, a, a professional product manager. Um, but for me, I just wasn't good. You know, I've got this vision. I just spent 15 minutes talking about it. But you know, how did we how did we translate that into something that a developer can actually go write, you know, code for and deliver? Um, and for me personally, my background did not lend itself to to you know, to that, but I think I've learned a ton and I've gotten a lot better at it since then. Is there anything you'd share again, it could be current that you've learned over the last, you know, period of time, or even in, in your past sales kind of uh, roles, um, growing with channel advisor around any, any learning is it books you read podcasts, like where, where do you learn from? Or are there any one or two books you might share? Like someone had, you know, you got to read this because this will you know, change my life type thing. Yeah, um, I, I I haven't read any books that will change my life. I can I can tell you that. I think that um, look, there's a lot of sales books out there, and a lot of them are are fine. I think that part of it is just you should read books, okay? And and I think that this this also ties into what are the types of people you look for when you're interviewing salespeople in particular, right? Like, so one of the one of the top two or three things for me is are you intellectually curious? Right, because a you listen, uh, b you want to learn, and if you listen, you want to learn. That's going to define how you perform in the early stages of your sales processes. Are you listening to your customer? Are you learning from your customer? And if you're listening to your customer and understanding their problems, you're going to build a roadmap for how to solve those problems. And um, a lot of that is very aligned with a sales methodology called spin selling, which if, if you have listeners that are sales professionals and have done it for a long time, they've probably heard of spin selling. And, and so I, I recommend spin selling. We used to, we used to do training on it for all of our sales, uh, staff, they would read the book and I would, I would personally do sales training for, for almost all of our sales new hires on spin selling. Uh, and it really just, it really just coaches and trains people on, how to, how to ask appropriate questions to elicit the information to build a value proposition. So I think it's really important. There's other books I like. I like Challenger Sale, a Solution Sale. Spin Selling is just an offshoot of Solution Selling. Um, you know, so, you know, those are, those are important. So, but, but a lot of the sales books, you know, beyond, beyond that, you're just going to get reminded of things that you know you should be doing. And that's very important. So read, you know, and I read probably 10 to 15 books a year maybe one of them is a sales book and the rest of them are either business books or historical fiction. So, um, you know, this year books like, uh, you know, uh, bad blood, the, the Theranos story I thought was, was super compelling. Um, shoe dog, which was Phil Knight's story. Great book. Um, you know, I read the hard thing about hard things, the startup book. Um, I think that was Ben Horowitz. If I'm not mistaken, um, you know, the Netflix book I thought was great. 
um, you know, so so I read business and then historical fiction. I'm a, I'm a history buff, a little bit of a history buff. So, um, you know, that, that that's kind of what's on my reading list. But I, I would say read a book every year about sales and it'll just refresh you. If you're a professional salesperson, a lot of stuff you already know and you're just getting reminded to do these things. So where can everyone find you online? Where can they where check you out and, and see what you're doing? Yeah, I, you know, I in the last year or so, I've started doing a lot more on LinkedIn. And so check out my LinkedIn profile. Feel free to connect with me. Send me a message. Um, you know, I'm easy to find on LinkedIn. Just search Ryan Walsh. You'll see RepView. You'll see all the other stuff I've done. I post probably a couple times a week on LinkedIn. And it's 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 just honest sales feedback. It's honest sales thoughts. It's honest sales guidance. And I get this from dealing every day, every week, every month with sales professionals that are trying to advance their career. And I just try and be truthful and honest, and I'm not trying to really sell anything. Um, so, so find me on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter. Um, RepView is on Instagram. RepView is on Facebook, but we don't do a ton there yet. We're just getting started. Um, if you are in sales, uh, you know, I would humbly ask, go rate a sales organization. We're still very, very early. So email me directly, ryan at repview.com. If you have any feedback, love to hear it. Um, but uh, over the next year, we really plan on scaling up the, the data set, the ratings uh, data set. And, um, you know, so, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty visible online. You can find me, reach out to me, email me, DM me, whatever. Love to chat. I love to chat sales. I love to chat hiring and retention and um, software and, and best practices on those sorts of things. And I always like to kind of, you know, end the interviews to kind of a more of an open forum here. Um, it could be a quote, it could be a mantra you live by. Maybe it's just something on your mind over the last few days, who knows, but any kind of yeah. parting words uh, to the listeners um, that you'd like to share? Yeah. I mean, I, I would say that, um, you know, th that, and, and this this ties into my personal philosophical approach. Right? I have a, a philosophical approach to, to running teams and to business, which is fairness, accountability, transparency, and integrity. And, and um, of those four, I, I even put more of an emphasis on transparency and everything that, that I do, whether it was running a team of 10 people, running a team of 200 people. Um, and I would, I would say to look inward and, do you feel like in your current role in your current company, you have the transparency you need? Because I just think it's super, super important um, to, to for leadership to be as transparent as possible with employees related around, you know, what does the business want to want to accomplish? Why do we want to accomplish that? Uh, what role do you play in accomplishing that? What do we what will happen if we do accomplish that? And what will happen if we don't accomplish that? And what does all that mean for me? And, and so just try and step out of your day-to-day -day grind every once in a while. Think about the transparency and the bigger picture of, um, you know, of, of your organization. And, and, and in stepping out of that day-to-day -day grind as well, give yourself an opportunity to think about what are some other problems that you can solve. But I think, you know, for me, um, you know, I think about this a lot, which is that, that philosophical approach fairness. And I don't, have a, I don't have a big team now. It's really me part-time CTO and then outsourced designers and outsourced developers. Um, but we still just every week we think about how can we, as, we be as transparent as possible because it's going to help the developers code. It's going to help the salespeople understand, you know, what they should be doing. And, um, you know, so, so is your organization as transparent as it should be? And, and for me, that's number one on my list of kind of philosophies that I, that I try and 
you know, go by. Brian, this has been an absolute pleasure. We've uh, we unpacked a lot of things in this uh, short amount of time, so it was fun to uh, to have you on and chat. And I, I appreciate you taking some time out. Yeah, yeah, glad to do it. I appreciate the opportunity, and uh, you know, I'm sure, um, hopefully, we'll get an opportunity to chat again in the future. Well, I hope everyone enjoyed that interview. And one more quick thing before you head off on your day. If you don't mind, head over to iTunes, leave me a review, let me know how I'm doing. I certainly appreciate the feedback. It only is going to make this podcast better each and every episode. As always, you guys can find me online, uh, brianondraco.com. That's B-R-I-A-N-O-N-D-R-A-K-O, as well as on Instagram or Twitter, at brianondraco. Thanks again for listening in. I hope you guys have a great day, a phenomenal week. And we'll see you soon. Take care. Just get started.